0: I, I love games, I love Lego serious play because it unlocks, it unlocks a, a, a tension, a, a, a conformed reality that people feel stuck in. And through play, you're able to build your own metaphors of, of understanding and place in the world, in the environment in which you are seeking to change or better understand. and. I think, you know, even before we get to, you know, board games or Lego serious play, the one thing that we all have access to as individuals is the ability to to read, to expose ourselves to various perspectives. And I absolutely, you know, love science fiction and being able to to explore those 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 different types of futures.
1: So, Paul, today we have joining us is someone that we both know very well. It's Dr. Lauren Vargas, or L. Vargas, as we all know her. Uh, she has this wonderful way of describing herself, which is being a digital dragon wrangler. And her own company is called Your Digital Tattoo as well. Um, which seems to all fit her so beautifully. Um, but she has uh, over 20 years of experience uh, assisting organizations with their communities, with their communication and collaboration strategies. Um, and one of the reasons we've invited her onto the podcast is that her practice really operates that intersection of community and technology. And she really just integrates this idea of inclusive, regenerative Ways of working into the way that she approaches things. So she talks about sense making, play, scenario planning, systems mapping. And it's wonderful because she has both this experience of the corporate world. So she used to work for Fidelity over in America. And she also has the experience of the academic world. So she's done, she is a researcher, an independent researcher with the University of Leicester and also experience of the kind of cultural world in the not-for-profit sector. So she straddles all these different segments of society in terms of her experience and approaches it from a a position of being life-centred. So that's why we had her on. And um, how did you make
2: of the conversation? She really kind of challenges the way I think. She sort of challenges the way we think and, and sort of highlights that we're that were embedded in a mechanistic, um, literal system of way of thinking around work. And that by talking about topics like emotion, grace, compassion, healthy conflict, and the idea of sort of liberating work from one kind of dimension, almost adding a new dimension to it and changing its nature, I think it's really as she says, it's really challenging work itself and certainly challenges me to sort of get my head around it, which I kind of, I feel like I sort of have to sort of float into Elle's kind of slipstream and then and then kind of get with it. And I really enjoyed um, that. And I loved, you know, the way she talks about science fiction as a way of kind of, le- and, and the importance of play and uh, games, and uh, this idea of exploration of of work, and and not coming up with a whole sort of recipe of this is how you do it. This is what the, the you know, the future is X, Y, Z. We don't know what collectively we can bring to the world of work once we imagine a, a more beautiful world of work.
1: And the, the framework that she's developed that we were exploring together, this idea of um, be, care to be calm, which I forgot to mention it in the conversation, but was inspired by the whole keep mm. calm and carry on. Oh, is it? British okay. way of being. It was her original kind of inspiration for the, the word. But this idea of, for, and she will, she'll get into it in a lot more detail in the conversation, but the idea that calm is an acronym that lists certain behaviors are regenerative but then the care aspects the idea of being how do you communicate being adaptive being resilient being empathetic and the kind of emotions and the emotional bits that sit beneath those behaviors is exactly what you were getting at the idea that how do we start to integrate that emotional awareness that sense of who we are and how we respond to things within work as being a core part of being regenerative and being life-centered. And I think, you know, we've, we're we used in our work to historically to talk about you being user-centered. And then we've seen people shift that to being human-centered. And I love that, Elle, as you were saying, challenges that even further and says, well, how are we life-centered?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way, being human-centered was a good thing when we were machine-centered, but now that we're nature or living system kind of orientated, you know, human beings are part of nature. So one of the kind of existential questions of our time is how do human beings see themselves not as dominant of nature, but as part of nature and then, you know, recalibrating ourselves because of that. So um, let's get into our chat with Elf.
1: So, Elle, I just thank you again so much for joining today. And we've worked with you so closely throughout the years with DWG and and through Nature of Work as well now. And one of the elements of Nature of Work is regeneration, and it's one that's really exciting for me and Paul. And I think one of the things... We've learned, particularly over the last year, is that there's this huge field called regenerative practice that has so many different components to it. And I know it's something that's near and dear to your heart. And so I just wanted to start by asking what does regenerative practice mean for you and what attracted you to it? Well,
0: first, thank you so much for inviting me to to be a guest on the podcast today. And you're right, a regenerative practice is something that is near and dear to my heart. And I've been looking at Exploring regenerative practice in terms of uh, how how an organization evolves how it develops, and so in that particular context, it is. How, how does critical thinking, how does creative thinking become part of the work design, part of the communication and collaboration practice? How are people thinking about how they work together, about how they coordinate activities, about how they do so in terms where they are living into their own values? When I think about regenerative practice, it means that every single employee, member of the workforce, is thinking like a CEO, is thinking like a decision maker that has an understanding of the market, of strategy, um, is able to, to really feed in to the innovation cycle. Innovation doesn't belong to any one person or team, but as an element of our roles and responsibilities. I'm thinking about a regenerative organization as one that Is really focusing on developing its talent rather than buying its talent which means that it's all about growing our collective capability of of critical thinking and of caring for one another caring about the the life around us and really understanding that our actions have consequences and there is a ripple effect and having that understanding that there is that external consideration that needs to be in play for every single internal and external action, practice, and process. So regeneration is really about how do we fit in to to these concentric circles that are our society, our network, um, the communities in which we belong all the way down to our individual selves.
1: I love that. I love the idea of the concentric circles as well, because it's one of the things we talk about with living systems is that idea of the nested circles. You've got the individual, you've got the individual within a team, the team within the department, the department within a region, within the organization, but it doesn't stop there. The boundary doesn't stop there. It's then the organization within society, within community, within, within all the various other systems that it, it needs to work within. And I guess a follow-up question would be, if that's regenerative practice, how does that contrast to how things are done at the moment?
0: You know, we, we, I, I think this has been said multiple times, you know, both, both on this podcast and an and adjacent podcast, but, you know, not considering individuals as just cogs in a machine, you know, not taking that industrial mindset into the 21st century and, and where learning and growth is, is an individual burden rather than the necessity of the organization of the entity to invest back in its own people it's rethinking our development both as as individuals team members and an organization understanding those different pace layers of change and and to to move beyond those those cogs in the wheel to move beyond technology and process and really understand the not the human-centered aspect, because I think that's, that's, that's a great first start, <laughs> but it's also very limiting. And there's a dark side to that approach, but thinking more of that life-centered approach and really thinking about those intended and unintended consequences of our actions. And we're not really giving the, the space, the time to be able to reflect and process what that actually means in today's you know, cash and time-poor environments.
2: So, L, you kind of made me think there. So you said there's a dark side to a human-centered rather than nature-centered approach. What, what, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, I, I think I think taking a human-centered approach. Don't get me wrong. I think that's a great that's a great first step. We we're, are you know putting. We are thinking about the individual, and not just the process or the technology, but we can't just think about the humans as the only thing in the ecosystem that is being impacted by our actions. Right? It's it's our environment. Um, it is you know understanding that everything that we do is is having an impact on all of those interconnected relationships within. Within our our hyper local, our regional, national, and and overarching environments, and that's something that I, I think we we kind of understand at a, at a really high level. But actually putting that into our everyday practice as part of that regenerative practice is still something that that needs modeling, that still needs um, more nurturing um, and and cultivating. Mm.
2: Okay, no, because I I often think that the the human centered approach, which obviously nobody's kind of disputed and nobody's sort of disputing, seems to me could be quite a narrow um, approach. In that humans are part of nature, nature is not part of humans. It's 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 sort of nature comes first and then within nature you have humans but what what's an example would you say of a human centered approach versus a nature centered approach in in this area
0: well that might that might that might look like like the me instead of we um, it might be the it might be looking at more of a Capitalism versus stakeholder capitalism. It might be looking at more of a reduction system versus a holistic system, or mm-hmm. just the fact of being unaware of systems b- to being able to see the system. Um, it might look as being extractive mm. to, in con- you know, in, in contrast to being regenerative. Or one of the one one of the lenses that I really like to look from is. How do we move from the future happens to us to we can make the future happen?
1: And it, it makes me think as well, like we because we it's evolved from user centered to employee centered to human centered and now life centered. And I think. All of this, it reminds me of the idea that when we talk about human-centered, very often we mean employee-centered within the organization. It's about just the individual employee and the services around them and are we making sure the design is right? But actually, as you were saying, there are other ripple effects to the the things that we're designing, whether that's the environment, the family, the society that it fits in, and what are those unintended consequences? So there's something about life-centered as you were saying paul just really expands the the what we're aware of in terms of the ripple effects of our actions and so L, a um a question i had that then follows on from that we one of the things that we talk about is the idea of from concept to practice and taking big ideas like being life-centered like regenerative practice and then how do you do that on a day-to-day scale and I know that you've spent a lot of time working and developing on what you call the CALM framework, um, which draws on some of these ideas of regenerative practice. And so it would be great just to hear how was that conceived and what is it?
0: Sure. So the, the, the CALM framework is actually part of a, a broader framework that I've called Take Care to Be Calm. And CARE and CALM are acronyms for how we show up. Um, and, and how, we, how we start to embed these everyday regenerative practices. And it's been through the, the 20 years of, of, of practice in, in the private sector, as well as three postdoc uh, research projects where I've been looking at organizational design, organizational uh, knowledge management that the take care to be calm surface has really, or the, the take care to be calm approach has really surfaced in the last, I would say three to five years. It's a life centered framework to develop fit for purpose digital mindsets, skill sets, and tool sets. So the the combined elements there are eight four in care foreign in calm, really form a contextual holistic purposeful, and empathetic scaffolding for the design, the implementation of, and the analysis of of digital activities or efforts. So COM stands for collaborative, anticipatory, leaderful, and mindful practices. Now, in order to be collaborative, we first need to know how to communicate. So, how are we able to engage openly and transparently and develop, collectively develop work products? We have to first understand that communication to really be able to understand how we actively listen and develop cultural competence and really understand the most appropriate methods for inclusive exchange of information, ideas, perspectives. Then when we move to more of an anticipatory approach, where we're planning effectively and we're able to build in feedback loops, we first need to understand how we adapt. What what is our ability to be able to learn from the past to inform our present and plan for the future? When we think about the L in the calm approach, that's letting go of command and control and really embracing more of a leaderful approach where we're letting go of that heroic or savior complex, and really embracing and locating leaders at all levels and and really fostering that sense of shared decision-making and accountability. And in order to have that leaderful approach, we first need to, to understand how resilience is built. Right. So the ability to mentally or emotionally cope and recover from traumatic crises, experiences, overarching change. And then the last part of the calm framework is developing mindful practices and processes, really making the time and the space to reflect on information decisions. And to do that, we need the last element of the care framework which is that of empathy right the ability to understand and share the feelings of another and combined those elements help us you know start to think about how are we engaging how are we showing up every single day how are we building our emotional skill sets so that we can apply them to business intelligence and digital skill sets and so there's a lot of work to be done at an individual team and organizational level to be able to really foster this type of thinking to shape our practices and processes so that they are more holistic, more contextual. They're not copy and paste from Harvard Business Review or a, a company or organization that we look up to, but they're fit for purpose for our organization's guiding principles, values, etc. cetera
2: and would it be possible to give uh, an example of a uh, of where this methodology's been applied L, or some kind of story that could bring this to life because it's it's a very different way of looking at um a process or a a kind of practice and obviously it is based in this uh, life-centered nature-centered approach but um I think it'd be useful just to kind of try and kind of get bring it to life through through an example if you've got one
0: sure so I I was at Fidelity in 2017 and I was brought in to to consider the digital workplace and really think about the scope and the scale of, of such efforts and I used the calm approach and specifically extending it to the care to become approach to really think through what was needed why it was needed before we started building out our technical requirements and so it was really looking at you know how how are people coming into community with one another how are they sharing information what does those what are those information flows look like if people are collaborating, how are they? How are they coming together? How are they convening? What is that implicit and explicit uh, knowledge and and expectations that are being considered? And are we really looking at what has been done in the past? in order to help us you know craft a a plan or a strategy for the types of spaces the types of communities that that needed to be shaped or the bridges between these communities that needed to be built in this new digital workplace and to do that we needed to understand how how change was was being accepted or how change was 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 I, I hate to say managed but how it was rippling across the organization across that individual team department and organizational pace and really thinking through what what are the specific needs of various individuals various teams not having that cut and paste approach and I was able to apply that exact same, framework to develop the practices and processes that would guide that that initial scaffolding of the digital workplace in the cultural sector. So as part of a one-by-one one research project out of the University of Leicester, I was embedded in several different large museums that were grappling with digital transformation, digital change, both before um, the pandemic, as well as you know, throughout um, throughout the pandemic, and it really came down to we weren't looking at, at at pinpointing a specific set of digital skills or digital competencies, capabilities, and literacies, but really showcasing how how we can work out loud, how we can how we can better understand and bring to light, surface the different relationships and, and dependencies, because most often that information is not made explicit and is is will make or break any type of, of change or strategy. And so using the Care to Be Calm approach, we took several different museums from not having a very connected digital workplace environment to having it be the hub of communication, of knowledge exchange, so that when the pandemic did happen, it wasn't, it wasn't a foreign process to be able to engage in that particular way. And so it's thinking about what are those everyday practices and processes, not, not focusing on those big, massive projects. Necessarily, but how are we showing up every single day? How are decisions being made? How is communication occurring? And how can we start to build those bridges, understand those interdependencies between the various groups and individuals? No one's alone in this. And
2: and how did you did you how did people react to this? Um, either in the museums, the University of Leicester, Fidelity, was it something that felt quite natural, or was it sort of quite a challenge to? A more mechanistic approach?
0: It's definitely a challenge. I think in, in and it's interesting because I'm 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 consistently asked what the difference is between working in the private sector and working in the, the cultural or heritage sector. And I say there there isn't a difference. I'm working with humans. I'm working with humans and understanding their role in a broader ecosystem. And I think that there there was definitely resistance to this type of more Open and transparent ways of working. But once people were able to visibly see how connections were or were not being made, it it, it almost became a challenge to to want to unearth and understand more about why these blockages were occurring and what could be done to better understand internally how they could develop so that they could create meaningful fit-for-purpose exchanges with their external customers, visitors, audiences. Because I think that so much energy was being placed on that external audience, customer, visitor, audience, and not enough on the workforce themselves but if we don't if we don't invest if we are not if, if we're not cognizant of of that of the change of the challenge of the overarching you know burden of said change and challenge internally we're never going to to be able to to, to create those meaningful sustainable uh interactions externally we have to move from transactions to interactions, and that begins inside our own workplaces.
1: There's such an interesting paradox there that you've, you've kind of touched upon, which is we're talking about being life-centered. We're talking about nature's principles, the idea that humans are of nature. So this, in theory, is like a very natural way for us to be working. And yet the challenge is how hard it is to get people to work in that way or help them work in that way because we are so rooted in the old system. And there's just a fascination there about, I guess, how, how we've lost that side of ourselves as humans or as, as beings of nature to be able to collaborate, to be able to sense and respond, to kind of be tapped into the principles of nature and of life as a way of working. And I guess there's something there in just how deeply embedded and habitual the, the mechanistic, the command and control, the, the kind of old ways of working are within us, that to unlearn that and rediscover the life-centered approach is, is really an evolution that we need to go through again.
0: It very much is. We carry that system inside of us. So when we're talking about breaking down you know, these the systems, it's really uncomfortable because we have to break down ourselves first. And it's so easy. You know, one of the things that I encountered both both at my time in Fidelity and previous workplaces when I was going through very similar digital transformations or digital strategies, as well as the cultural sector, is people are more willing to talk about, you know, what's what's happening, what's not happening outside of them, right? Their, their immediate purview, like, oh, if this could be changed over here, that would be great. Right. But when we actually like, no, we actually start with ourselves and that has to be changed first. Then it becomes like, whoa, right? Like a, like I, that's, that's a bit more of a challenge that I was ready to really tackle. You mean I'm complicit in, in this, in this challenge, I'm feeding in to this system and, and that's very much, when we talk about those different pace layers of change, if this if the work doesn't start with the individual, you're never going to see that team department and overarching organizational evolution, right? So that's a really interesting challenge and and continuous work that needs to be done.
1: Yeah. And it's fascinating because you mentioned individual team organization as one of those kind of nested ways of approaching it and even for me when i've done research into organizational readiness and i talk about the individual i always picture the individual as someone else as opposed to kind of putting myself in that position and thinking okay imagine i am the individual what internal changes do i need to go through in in order to do that and it's something that paul you and i were talking about over the weekend l you and i have explored it separately as well this idea of The system itself, whether that's an organizational system, a team group, a working circle, or or the processes of an organization or whatever, need to change. And that's all kind of external, but the internal change that needs to take place, again, amongst leaders, but also amongst individuals within an organization, is that kind of uncomfortable thing that we're starting to talk about and integrate into this type of practice. And you know the care to be calm framework that you've shared the calm bit is kind of behavioral but then the care part is emotional and so having the emotional elements to each part of the behavioral change is is such a kind of beautiful way of of showing it um and i just wonder what are some of the ways some of the practices that you've seen work for that internal Kind of in, that introspective change because I, I know we can talk about for example journaling and and you talk about book DNA and, and lots of different things but what have you what are some of the practices that you've seen that for individuals to go through to help with that
0: I think we have to first start to you know break down the assumption that people know how to communicate and to collaborate. Um, and when we were talking before about that mechanistic approach, it starts in our schools, right? And it is, it is re-emphasized, restated as we move through our curriculum, our, our, our schooling into an organizational environment. And we need to not assume as organizations that people know how to manage their emotions, how to regulate their emotions, how to communicate and collaborate with grace and compassion. And so it first starts by understanding what the expectations are, the assumptions that are being made at an individual level and how they communicate how they collaborate within their role and responsibility it's understanding the hidden emotional labor that is part of their role and responsibility before we can start to uncover or surface the the different team and organizational changes that need to that need to happen and so part of this means that we have to individually gain a greater cultural competence, like we have to understand our own identities, our own biases, our own ways and how we show up or don't show up before we can start to get curious about what is happening external to us. So are we given the space as individuals within an organization to really do that introspective work and to understand um, when, you know, this is a learning, a deeply you know, emotional learning process, and that we are going to make mistakes. This isn't a one and done thing. This isn't something that, you know, we check the box and say is done. We are culturally competent. We are emotionally, you know, able and skilled. It's something that we have to practice on an everyday basis in order to continue to develop as humans with other humans and within that that overall life-centered approach. So we can't change other people. We can only recognize where we are. And so the work begins with us as individuals. So whether that means us taking the time to to get curious about, as I said before, our identities, our bias, um, it means that we need to take in other perspectives. How do we how do we hold multiple truths? How do we? How do we? How do we practice conflict? Right? I don't think conflict is a bad thing. I don't think tension is a bad thing. Um, we can have healthy versus toxic conflict. So how are we actively engaging, understanding, and engaging in healthy conflict? How are we individually taking ownership of of where we may be complicit in promoting? You know various norms or conditions that are singling people out, calling people out rather than calling people in. And I think a lot of that has to do with just opening and becoming more aware of what we're reading, what we're watching, what we're consuming, um, and having a diversity of voices and perspectives that just start to marinate within us rather you know listening to you know listening versus always speaking i think is a, a very good first step
2: mm. and and um El, one one of the things that that Shinrit and i did over the weekend was we were doing a book talk at a literary festival and um one thing that struck me was that the conversation about the nature of work was something that everybody in the audience had a connection to. They all had stories about their own experience of work, and the changes that had happened in the world of work, the way it was changing local economies, both positively and, and negatively. The, the kind of... A, all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, the work itself has been in the spotlight. And you're talking about the importance of education, Emotions, grace, compassions, healthy conflict, and I'm thinking to myself, what is the the sort of what are the possibilities for a better world of work, for a more beautiful world of work, if if these new approaches become kind of embedded and part of the way that we work?
0: Well, that's a that's a great question because I think you you, you answered it also in the question itself, in that we need to. We need to consider the many futures, right? The, the probable, the plausible, and the possible. We need to imagine these futures together, and and doing that, that means we need to shift from problem to possibility. So it's it's not just about lowering the amount of suffering, or uh, you know, I think we're we're focused on measuring the wrong things and and we can't change unless we change our our measures of success and so that means going back to that you know to that nature centered approach and thinking about how might we you know measure the the diversity of those relationships those networks how are we we gauging that sense and response mechanism um how are we you know looking and and surfacing the emotional label labor the unseen foundations and systems you know what's the benefit or the impact of those connections of those relationships are are people acknowledging, understanding, and able to really place their specific role and responsibility into the purpose of the organization? Are they able to you know, feel safe and safe is relative? Are they able to have brave conversations, maybe rather than safe conversations in their own habitats? And so the only way we get to that is when we shift from problem to possibility and really think about how do we liberate ourselves from this mechanistic approach to really think about moving from focusing on the negative to focusing on how do we move into positive interactions versus transactions where we are imagining those possibilities together? I think for me to even begin to, like, list those possibilities, that's, that's – that is – that is. That's me putting, you know, my projecting that onto another rather than us coming together, thinking and imagining together and really making the space and the time to do so, which I think is is a much more beneficial activity.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of process, isn't there, of, of, of sort of, as you said, liberating work from the, the straitjacket, the mechanistic. And, and I suppose what you're saying is we, we actually don't know what this new cultural dimension in work, it is a cultural change in, in work. And one of the things that Shimreitz and I were saying at the um, at the literary festival was that the industrial revolution took probably 50 years to introduce and embed a mechanistic um, system of and story of work. Um, I don't think this current cultural revolution in work is going to take 50 years, probably going to, but I think it's, it's probably going to take the rest of this decade. Um, So sort of longer, you know, decently long amount of time, but not as long as we think. And um, actually it's hard for us to imagine what that's actually going to be like because we've not experienced that before. And I think that's what you're you're saying, Alan. I guess um, probably the place we can look at is maybe examples of uh, organisations, small or large, where we see some of the, characteristic some of the ingredients of of this more beautiful world of work which we talk about in the book as as being our sort of vision without putting the kind of detail on it if you like
0: right i think i think that's exactly it it's 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 knowing that those possibilities exist and how do we imagine together where we are 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 moving we're we're significantly not just moving but completely shifting changing the measures of success and moving towards you know what is the impact of our relationships at that at, at those various concentric circles and really understanding how each and every interaction contributes to our combined, our collective success, and to do that, we need to understand the collective baggage, um, emotional, and and change crises or burdens that we have carried with us, as you just said, that, you know, everybody in that audience could could connect in some way, some form, some fashion to the evolution or the change in work. Everybody has their own story. How are we looking and celebrating what we might do to shift those stories and, and come together and really form not just new ways of working, but just new ways of understanding and coming together, and celebrating the differences of all the humans in which we are interacting with.
2: Mm. I mean, an example for me would be, and you know, I've mentioned Rosie Brown from Cook, the the uh, ready meal company. Um, it must sound like I've got shares in them, but I haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, th- just because you know they, the fact that they employ people who've been um, formerly in prison, that they have a different kind of philosophy and ethic around work you know they they don't pay as much as some of the uh, other organizations that people then leave them to go to but then always come back from and 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 I think it's sort of examples like that which I think are evocative of a different kind of experience of work
0: it's 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 promoting life experience over some of those traditional uh qualifiers that we've had in the past do we actually need university degrees you know what what helps us to contribute to, to the success of the individual and the organization and how do we how do we celebrate that lived experience how do we celebrate that continuous learning those continuous lived experiences rather than those traditional ways in which of measuring or gauging, gauging a person's success or contribution
1: One of the things that came out really strongly strongly for me there, and I I keep hearing, is that almost pushback of somebody saying, well, what are the answers? Tell me what the answer is. Tell me what this looks like. Um, As opposed to us as a collective kind of improving our capability to imagine together collectively what that could be. So we come up with the answer together. And that can feel deeply uncomfortable because we just want to be told the answer. It's almost in a way reflective of our education system as you were saying the idea that students sometimes are spoon-fed as opposed to kind of taught the capability to think for themselves and the idea of critical thinking and something you've said a couple of times was this idea of imagining futures and imagining future scenarios and Something I know you have done and that we've started to speak about within DWG as well, I know I mentioned it in some of my research for DWG, is the role of play. And it feels strange to talk about play. When we're we're talking about work, it immediately evokes images of children and playgrounds and Lego and toys and all those things. But I think that that need to build or rediscover our, our kind of imaginative muscle is something that's part of this work as well. I mean, you've you've spoken about. Science fiction in the past. One of the first things I ever heard you speak about when I first got to meet you was how we all need to be science fiction writers, and it's something that has, even though that was seven years ago, maybe stuck with me. And it's it's something I'd love to explore with you just before we close out is this idea of how do we build our collective collective imagination muscle? How do we build our capability to to play so that we can start to imagine those futures?
0: Yeah, it's all about divorcing ourselves from our current realities um, to be able to experience those those many futures, but also to to more deeply understand the different perspectives that are contributing to those futures. So I use play quite a bit, you know. So so as you just mentioned, I'll talk more about science fiction in just a second. But I I love games. I love Lego Serious Play because it unlocks. It unlocks a a, a tension, a conformed reality that people feel stuck in. And through play, you're able to build your own metaphors of, of understanding and place in the world, in the environment, in which you are seeking to change or better understand. And I think, you know, even before we get to, you know, Board games or Lego Serious Play. The one thing that we all have access to as individuals is the ability to to read, to expose ourselves to various perspectives. And I absolutely, you know, love science fiction and being able to, to explore those 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 different types of futures. And I read about three to four books a week. I call it my book DNA. One book may lead to another, and it's usually half nonfiction, half fiction. And science fiction and fantasy in particular really helps me to understand not just my own, but other people's relationship to change. I think there's, a, you know, if, if you are wanting to start somewhere, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower is, is definitely a good place to start. And there's an accompanying podcast that actually started a couple of years ago by Adrian Murray Brown and Toshi Regan called Octavia's Parables. And it really walks through the entire Butler series and grappling with how do individuals consider change? How does this change impact the individual and the collective? So science fiction at its core is all about disruption, right? It's all about an understanding of the other, And that has both negative and positive impacts, as well as lessons for change. And I think that's something that we can all continuously come back to.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, the idea of science fiction, one of the, my partner and I went on a, a a day's writing course for science fiction last month. And one of the things that came out really strongly in that was that a lot of sci-fi or a lot of the stories we were looking at anyway were quite dystopian mm-hmm. and one of the things that we discovered when we were doing the book was the genre of solarpunk, which actually yeah. flips it and looks to to imagine I to talk about utopia again but in a more realistic sense and in a in a way that brought in almost kind of the afropunk idea and, and just building out what that could mean in a positive way and I think you know Paul you and I in the book talk about arrivals we talk about the importance of language the importance of metaphor and language I think is inherently playful language in itself is just different ways of trying to describe feelings and what we can perceive and see in the world and within ourselves so building that that playful muscle whether that's through reading whether that's through lego so that we can start to expand on our language and the ways that we describe and see things is such an integral part of this um and thank you for the recommendations as well octavia butler has been on my list for a long time and that's just given me a specific (laughs) thing to start with as well um just before we close out I want to ask is there anything any kind of final thoughts from you anything we you wish we could have asked you that we didn't that you want to close on I
0: I, th- I think I would just close with this we are th- those pace layers of change we need to understand that each of us individually are on our own journey some of us may be on that journey at times together, and at other times we will diverge. And we really, really need to understand how, how, how to practice grace and compassion, the art of the apology, the art of, of better understanding different perspectives. This is the only way in which we can increase or develop our communication and collaboration muscles the only way in which we can begin to reimagine those futures is if we give ourselves the space and the time to reflect on how we show up and that begins with modeling the behaviors the emotions that we seek
1: and on that Elle thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your ideas it's always a joy to speak with you Um, And I look forward to seeing what comes next for you too. So thank you again so much and take care for now.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, Elle. The Nature Work podcast is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading companies and public institutions to advance their digital workplaces. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.